Dear Chuck, of course you know how proud I am of you of all the things that you are doing. If that old Swede, my dad, should come to life, he would almost bust with pride over the success of his grandson. Only in America could such a thing happen. This is a letter from Chuck Colson's dad to himself, and Chuck read it right in the office next to the Oval Office. Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Nixon, an important role in the United States government, advising the president, thinking through public policy, as he would write, doing things to preserve peace in the world. And of course, his father was very proud that his, da- his son would have such an important role in the U.S. government and would be such a close ear and advisor to the President of the United States. Three years later, Chuck Colson would be in federal prison, pleading guilty for obstruction of justice in his hand in the Watergate scandal. You might not know this, but Chuck Colson in the New York Times was referenced as the hatchet man of the Nixon administration. Why? Because he created enemy lists for the administration to go after people, leaking articles to the press, disparaging people's character that were against the Nixon administration. In fact, the New York Times said he would run over his own grandma, grandma if necessary to be able to get things done for the president. But for Chuck and for the Nixon administration, he stood for justice, for peace, and for the American flag, and all the things that were patriotic. And he saw nothing wrong in what he was doing. Today, we are going to see someone else that thinks he's doing all the right things who called himself righteous under the law, one that had true confidence in the flesh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. But at the same time, he imprisoned Christians. He signed off on their executions. He was literally a hatchet man, standing for the justice of the Jewish law. Can God work on people like this? People that think they're just doing just fine even though they're far from him. People we might know in our own lives that just do their own thing. But maybe even ourselves living in our own worlds very far from who God is. Today, I'm going to argue, I think the scripture argues this. Instead of being surprised by how God works on us and others to accomplish his purposes, we should be ready for it. Instead of being surprised of how God works on us and others, we should be ready. Ready for the way That he takes people to accomplish his purposes. 
Today we're going to hear from Acts chapter 9, a story that we maybe have heard a thousand times, that we have known through Sunday school or stories about Christianity, that maybe just becomes rote to us. For some of you, it's maybe a story you've never heard before. Believe the historians point out, others point out, Acts chapter 9 is one of the most significant conversion stories in the history of time. That it changes an individual that then had such a significant part of changing the Roman world and the world itself. The writer of most of the New Testament. This man named Saul. My hope, even though you might know this story backwards and forwards and know it, that it might come back alive to you. That it will not just be something rote. That you would see it has an active part in our lives now. So what I'm going to do is, because it's a story, I'm going to take it in parts and let it unfold so that you can be in the tension so there's no spoilers at the beginning that you can just hear it and just pretend that you're living in the tension of this story. So let's start, shall we? Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at just verse 1 and 2 first. It's printed in your worship guide. I think it was printed under Acts chapter 8. It's actually Acts chapter 9, but you can look on with me. It's the right verses in there. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, welcome. We're going through the book of Acts this winter and this spring. It's a book that documents the rise of the church over 30 years. It's the second act of Luke, the writer. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, a physician who said he was going to write a book for his friend Theophilus. So Theophilus would be certain of what was being taught to him. That this is something that happened. Luke was a companion of Saul, who we're reading about in this story, Saul, Paul. And we see that he documents what happened to the early church and also hearing about the life of Jesus in the book of Luke. The mission of this book is laid out at the very beginning, before Jesus ascends back to heaven. He says the Holy Spirit will come. And with that, power will come among his followers for the message of the gospel to go to Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. Then to Samaria and Judea, Acts 8 through 10 and 11. And then to the ends of the earth, which we're seeing some glimpses of here. But there are questions that these followers of Jesus are wondering, will this message go to the ends of the earth? 
this band of Jesus followers seems very, very fragile at this point in time. And verses 1 and 2 show they are on shaky ground. Earlier we saw all the amazing things that were happening. That gospel was going forth north of Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea. But there's questions. But Saul. I love that. But Saul. And we see the shakiness of this message. We might not remember who this Saul character was, but he's come back into our view. Saul was the one that oversaw the stoning of the deacon Stephen. And then we see that he was ravaging the church. The actual Greek word, only used one time in the book of Acts, of animals tearing people apart. That is the word it was used for what Saul was doing to the church. Ravaging the church. Going from house to house, it says. Taking men and women and dragging them to jail. What happened is, people fled. The Christians fled from Jerusalem. Many of the Hellenist Christians. And they left to Samaria. And then we saw how the gospel went forward. When these people fled, like people like Philip, a friend of Stephen, the deacon, that was the evangelist, that the gospel went into Samaria, and, and to Samaria. But we see that we're not done with Saul. We thought, okay, maybe he's done, he's just in Jerusalem, everything like that. No. A hundred miles north of Jerusalem in Damascus, where people might have thought that they are totally safe, Saul asked the officials in Jerusalem, for an extradition order. Basically saying, can I go up to Damascus and go around into the synagogues and find Christians that are around in that town and drag them back to Jerusalem to put them into jail? Acts 22, as Paul describes, Saul describes himself, he says, I took people into chains, into prison. In Acts 26, he says, I signed off for people that were in prison to be executed. This is the guy that is now coming to the place where the gospel is going forward in Samaria to go find more of these Christians. This is not good for the movement. I mean, earlier we felt really happy about salvation going to the Ethiopian eunuch. You're thinking, man, God can save anyone. But if you're reading this, you're like, uh-oh. What is going to happen? And if you're in Damascus, you're, weighing, you're wondering, is this thing going to continue or are we in trouble? All you're thinking about is Saul is coming. How are we going to hide? What are we going to do? See, again, for those that know this story, have been in the church for, many time, for a long time, it's hard to see the tension. We know the spoilers of the story. I think many of us, because we know these stories so well, it's good to know them well, but many times we've become numb. Numb to the amazing work of God in history and the way that he can work in people's lives. I wonder, for some of us, if we have Saul's in our own life. People that we are fearful of. People that we wouldn't want to show up in our city, in our neighborhood, in our home. 
Maybe it's a political figure. Maybe it's an authority figure, your boss, or someone in your life, a parent in the past that maybe did some harsh things, a teacher, whatever it might be. People that we're fearful of in our lives, we do not like to be around. Some of us say, well, we don't live in a time like they did back in the day, dragged off to prison or people killed. We live in a more civil time where we might not be scared of people like that or fearful of what people might do to us. I do wonder about that. We live in a time where people call segments of the population deplorables, like it's no big deal. We live in a time in history where some people call segments of the population treasonous. We live in a time where over half of people that belong to political parties here in the United States, over half of people that identify to both political parties say the other party, people that are members of the other party, are immoral. Over half say the person from another party is an immoral person. We live in a time that one-third of Americans say they are estranged from a family member because of political positions, because of things that have happened in the past, and that percentage has been increasing and increasing over time. You know, what are the strategies that many of us have in this kind of environment? I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll work really hard so I can be in power so I don't have to have these people in power in my life. I know what I'll do. I'll isolate myself from society or from these places in society so I don't have to deal with these people. So either I put myself in power so I don't have to deal with people like that or I isolate myself from people so I don't have to deal with these kind of people. What should we think as Christians? Should that be our strategy? Should that be how we deal with people that we're afraid of or scared of or might come after us or might take away our liberties or our freedoms? That's how we respond? Remove ourselves? Fight so we can be in power so they don't have power? Think about these disciples in Damascus and what they might have been thinking. How is this message going to go to the ends of the earth? It can't get even a hundred miles before there's a warrant out for arrest. What is God going to do? Is God big enough? Is he big enough to change the most stubborn and dangerous people in the world? Should we just take people like that and write them off? Should we as the church just work on preserving what we have, hiding and being in our homes? It seems like God doesn't seem up to the task to saving the chaotic world that we're in. Many of us, myself included, 
We know the story of Saul. But we act like we have never heard it before. We should not be surprised as the church, as Christians, that God is working on the most dangerous people in the world. Even us. <laughs> that we should be ready to see that his plan unfolds. Even in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our prisons, in our country. That God is ready to work, and he does. Do you want to see how he works? This is an amazing story. Verses 3 through 9. If you've never heard this before, I mean, this should be mind-blowing. Like, pretend like you've never heard this before. And what's going to happen to this dude? Ready? Verses 3 through 9. Now, as he went, this is Saul, on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here is Saul on the road to Damascus, described by his compatriot Luke about what happened to him. There are two other references of what happened to him that Paul describes himself later in Acts, his own, in speeches. He talks about it in first person, what he experienced. And what happens in all of these stories in the description is that there's a Christophany, meaning Jesus appears. We saw earlier that Jesus appeared to Stephen, and some would argue he appears again here to Ananias. That Jesus comes and speaks to Saul. Saul, Saul, he says. Little note here, many of us believe that when Saul was faced with Christ, his name turned from Saul to Paul. That's a misconception. Actually, Saul has mentioned his name 11 more times after this. Not till we get to Acts 13 is it casually changed from Saul to Paul. It, the reason it's changed is because Paul is his Greek name. Just like some people might come here from other countries to the United States and take on different names because maybe their name is hard to pronounce or they want a more you know, Western name. In the same way, Saul was that Hebrew name, but when he went into the Roman world, maybe Paul was easier to pronounce. Or again, more of a Greek name. So he had that name Paul when he was ministering to the Gentiles. So sometimes I'll use it interchangeably myself, Saul slash Paul. But again, what's happening is that this Saul character is persecuting the church. And what Jesus says to him, there's an equation. His persecuting the church is actually persecuting Christ. What an amazing coming together of this. Jesus is saying, when you persecute my people, when you persecute the church, you are persecuting me. It's really what we know of theology, that we have union with Christ as the church. 
that when we are connected in the church together, we are connected with the living Christ. He intercedes for us. He lives in us. He works in us. We are the body of Christ, which makes sense. And Christ acknowledges that himself. So what happens is Saul is met with Jesus. And because of that bright light that he saw, he's blinded. And um, he also is then forced into this period of fasting where he's not able to eat or drink. I love what John Stott says about the situation. He says this, He who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. Saul thought he was in control. He thought he was in power. But Christ came to him and said, no, you are not. I am the sovereign God over all things in my people. And anyone that thinks that they can control this world is wrong. Because I am the true king. And I will humble anyone that I want to at any time and in any place. Paul said this. That Jesus, in Acts 26, that Jesus, and this is not mentioned in Acts 9, that he was kicking against the goads. It's a term that's used of a wooden stick that you put a metal thing on the top. In in an agrarian society, to get your cattle moving, you would poke them, right, with this goad. In Christ, what he says to Paul is this. He's saying that this is what you were doing. Like an obstinate cattle that would kick against that thing, thinking that it would not continue to poke them. That's what you are doing with me. You are kicking against me, an obstinate. But I'm going to work no matter what. Even in your obstinance, I find people. I'm after them. And I will get them. Because I love them. Forgot my book under there, Aaron. I gotta get that book so I can read a little bit here. Sorry. Thank you. My assistant, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, you know, when the Whitewater turmoil was happening, uh, Chuck Colson um, was with one of his friends, Tom Phillips. He was the president of the Raytheon Corporation. He's actually a lawyer for him. And he had noticed that this Tom Phillips. Um, he, he had a changed life. He just was, he was different. And he had heard from some friends that he had found religion, this Tom Phillips. And uh, Tom was asking Chuck about what was going on in his life and the, kind of the turmoil that was happening with the Whitewater, uh, white, um, the, what was going on at, why am I forgetting the name, at uh, Watergate, um, what was going on at Watergate. And, um, and so what was happening is, uh, he sat down with Tom, and uh, Tom explained how he had accepted Christ. He used this language of accepting Christ and committing his life to Jesus. And Chuck Colson writes um, about Tom's talking about this Jesus stuff. He says, what are you talking about? Yeah, Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago. Sure, he might have been a great moral teacher, and sure, he was maybe inspired by some god, 
But why would anyone accept him or commit one's life to Christ as if he was around today and working? Chuck Colson kicking against the goads, right? Things started to happen in his life and he actually called Tom Phillips a few months later and went to his house and Tom opened the Bible and talked about Jesus with him and was reading some of C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity and, and Chuck left the house and uh, this is what he writes about what happened to him. As I drove out of Tom's driveway, the tears were flowing uncontrollably. There were no street lights, no moonlight. The car headlights were flooding illumination before my eyes, but I was crying so hard it was like trying to swim underwater. I pulled to the side of the road, not more than a hundred yards from the entrance to Tom's driveway, the tires sinking into soft mounds of pine needles. I remember hoping that Tom wouldn't hear my sobbing. The only sound other than the chirping of crickets that penetrated the still of the night. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretenses, about fear of being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say more, so I repeated over and over the words, Take me. Take me. Take me. You know, as I go around Appleton, I'm amazed how people are in their own worlds into what they are doing right now, and no thought of God or his rule in their life. This was Saul, the great Pharisee, great teacher of the law, the great authority figure in his own world. This was Chuck Colson, special counsel to the president, advising the leaders of state about what to do. It's amazing how when I coach volleyball and I go to these centers and there's hundreds of parents watching, like I said, really bad volleyball at age 10. But they spend their whole day there with their kids. And it's great. They love their kids. But they also do it on Sunday, all day. Their own world. It's their kid. That's their world. 
Some of you don't even know that a world like that exists. It does. Do you know that? Two weeks ago, I was at Lawrence University at the chapel. I'm not much into jazz. My dad is. And I didn't know that world existed. And there is Wynton Marcellus with his whole band, right? These guys all have Juilliard degrees, their own albums. I mean, they are popular figures in their jazz world. And people are like, those are the best of the best. There's a jazz world that's out there. Right? I remember talking to one person about the jazz world. And they said, you know, these people are so close to beauty and the amazingness of music, but they are so far from God. You know, we have worlds that we've created, and we think everything is fine. Worlds that we create around our kids, our work, our leisure, our jobs, even religious work. You know what? Many of us are just kicking against the goads. But we should not be surprised that in people in those own worlds, that God can get a hold of them, can get a hold of us, and change us to a new reality of his reign. To show us that he is the king of all things. And there is no peace, there is no satisfaction, there is nothing apart from who he is. You know, for some of us, we are so angry at the world or people that live in their own worlds that we think there's no way that God can work in their lives. We just say they're stuck. And many times we, again, escape to our own Christian worlds, our own places. We say, you know, let them do their thing, we'll do our thing. I don't want to have to deal with these people. But that is not the response that we see here. Many times when we think about this story in Acts chapter 9, the emphasis is on Saul. But we realize that there's actually another character that comes to the forefront of the story that many times is ignored, but is just as significant, if not more significant, in the story. So let's read about this character, shall we? And see how we are more involved in this story than we realize. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. See, the Lord doesn't just show up to Saul. He shows up to one of his disciples, Ananias. And we see that Ananias responds in the way of Abraham and the prophets. A good response. Here I am. Right? I'm ready for the mission, God. Right? And God says, okay, go on this street. A street that still exists in Damascus today. Go to this house. And you'll find this person. And I think now is here we see the greatest tension in all this story. Greater than the tension of Saul coming to Damascus. Greater than the great thing of Jesus showing up and the light shining. The tension is this. That Ananias has given, been given the mission to go and lay hands on Saul. Why do I think it's the greatest tension in this story? Because the people that Acts is probably talking to most is us, Christians. And the thing is, that is who Ananias is in this story. And Ananias has been asked to go on basically what he might see as a suicide mission. To give up himself to the police. <laughs> or, in a negative way, the mob. The mafia boss, Saul, who he's heard all about, that he's imprisoned people, he's dragged them out of their home, he's executed people, and now, God, you're asking me to go to him? Are you crazy? And here is the climax of the passage. Verse 15. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The most unexpected places, the most unexpected people. God will take them and use them for his purposes. What does God do? He takes the lost. He takes those that are in their own worlds. He takes dead people. And he brings them to life to show his power and how he's able to accomplish his purposes. And Ananias, as disciple of Christ, knew what God does. If you are a Christian, you know what God does. I hope you do. That he's taken someone like you an obstinate person, a dead person, someone that would never choose him, but he chose 
you out of his grace and his love that all we can do is fall at his feet and say, God, you are worthy of all power and praise. And when you tell me to go to whatever person, I will. Because you came to me and you changed me, I can do the same with anyone else in my life. You doubt me? What's the first thing that Ananias says? Brother. Brother Saul. That is crazy. He killed other Christians that Ananias might have known. He imprisoned them. He caused people to flee their homes. And now what does he call him? Brother. The gospel turns enemies to brothers. Turns enemies to sons and daughters of the king. He transforms people into new life, into union with him. You know, one of the first people that Tom Phillips asked Chuck Colson to go see? was a Democratic senator from Iowa. His name was Harold Hughes. Harold Hughes is one of the people that the hatchet man, Chuck Colson, put on the enemy list for them to leak things about his alcoholism to the press. And then Tom Phillips told Chuck to go sit and be with Harold Hughes in a Bible study. Talk about tension. The hatchet man and the Democratic senator together in the same room in a Bible study. And Harold Hughes asked Chuck what God had done in his life. And Chuck shared the story about giving his life to Christ. And this is what Harold Hughes said to Chuck Colson. That's all I need to know, Chuck. You have accepted Jesus and he has forgiven you. I do the same. I love you now as my brother in Christ. I will stand with you. I will defend you anywhere and trust you with anything that I have. Ananias baptized Saul. He fed him. He commissioned him. And Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles that turned the Roman world upside down, writing the majority of the New Testament, doing it by being beaten, being stoned, being imprisoned, and suffering. He kept going. Harold Hughes discipled Chuck Colson. He stood by him when he went to prison. And through that, Chuck Colson founded Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest outreach to prisoners, ex-prisoners, and their families, that now is in over 120 countries and has reached tens and thousands of lives and brought cons to know Jesus Christ. Do you know who is just as significant in these stories? is people like Ananias 
and people like Harold Hughes. We should not be surprised that God would work in us. Are we ready? There is no one he can't change. There is no one he cannot turn into a brother and a sister. That he wants you to come alongside others into his transforming work in people's lives. It might be people here at church that are new to faith. It might be people in your workplace that are being goaded by God. That God might be calling you to sacrifice your time to invite them into your home. Yes, an enemy into your home to care for them and love them. That we would have the response, here I am, God. And then when we say, here I am, he says, I want you after this person. And we say, maybe not, God. He says, go. That's the way I changed you. Are you praying for those people in your life? Are you seeing the way God works in them? Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's our mayor. I don't know. <laughs> there is no one God cannot change. Some of you doubt, where's my Damascus road? Where's my light from heaven? Where is Jesus showing up in my world? Here he is. Here is Christ showing himself to you. That's what we do on Sunday morning. We say he is present. He is here. He changes us.